Almost this entire fall season, we've been doing this series called Ancient Cliff Notes. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament. And and we've been been asking ourselves, how do these ancient stories, um, what actually took place in these ancient stories, and then how does it actually impact our lives? Like, what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for our world here in Detroit today? And then last of all, we always ask, how does it point to Jesus? And today we're going to do something Uh, just a little bit different than we've done with kind of the rest of the series, um, because it's the last message before our family Christmas uh, service next week, and because we didn't really do a Christmas series, which we try to do like a bit of a Christmas series leading up to Christmas, like a few weeks to kind of anticipate, uh, you know, the Advent season uh, and leading up to Christmas, and because we didn't do that this year, we thought it'd be fitting to In the Old Testament, because we're in the Old Testament, look at a prophecy in the Old Testament that points to the birth of Jesus, which of course takes place in the New Testament. But there's a prophecy that's told uh, about how even in the midst of a world where everything seems like it's completely broken, that there's a child that's coming, and this child is going to put it all back together. And I'm going to read you a passage out of the book of Isaiah. And again, this is not going to be a cliff notes through the book of Isaiah. Uh, This is just going to be about Isaiah, about a time that he gives a prophecy. Uh, Perhaps we will do a whole cliff notes on that book another time. That would be awesome. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of these key verses that relate to Christmas. And then we're going to sort of cliff notes through what was going on in history during the time uh, that... Isaiah was writing what was going on in his time, and then in this prophecy, he points backwards to a couple of events, so we're going to just quickly kind of look through those and clip note through those events that he looks back on, and then of course he points to Christmas, so we're going to look at historically what was going on uh, during that time, the time that uh, we bet many people believed he was saying was going to come, and of course we know now that it has come, and it did come. There's just so much throughout the book of Isaiah about Jesus uh, that, that has... that. He said that Jesus would one day, or he didn't say Jesus, but he, Jesus one day fulfilled so much of this amazing book. But one thing we have to remember when we read, especially the prophets. See, prophets in the Old, in the Old Testament, they were also preachers. They weren't just prophets. So almost never did a prophet prophesy something only about what was going on. He always spoke to his culture. He always spoke to what was going on right now, but then there always was also an application there. So Isaiah had a lot going on in his world that we need to look at. And in the time that led up to the passage that we're going to read, a man named Ahaz was king. And Assyria was about to invade Israel. And Isaiah was prophesying that this would happen. He knew that this was going to happen. Uh, and then Isaiah 7.14 is a very famous passage that we uh, that we get in the Old Testament, and then it gets quoted in the New Testament about a young woman who would one day bear a child, and she would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And though we know, because of what Matthew quotes later, that, that, um, that this was ultimately talking about Jesus, when Israel would have heard that, they would have understood this not so much to mean that God is with us, like God is a person who's with us. They would have, meant, they would have thought more of this meant like Emmanuel as in like, uh, God is acting on our behalf. God is doing something in our midst. God is fighting our battle. God, even though we know that the situation seems totally hopeless, God is going to move on our behalf. And of course, we know ultimately that happened through Jesus. But when Isaiah, when Isaiah wrote this, what Israel kind of pointed to and what Israel ultimately thought uh, was that Emmanuel was somebody named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was Ahaz's son, 
And Ahaz was a very wicked king. But Hezekiah was not a wicked king. Hezekiah was an awesome king. Hezekiah loved the Lord. Uh, When he took office, he took reign, he destroyed all of Israel's idols. He reopened the temple because the temple wasn't open anymore. He reopened it. He did a ton of good. So compared to his father, he would have seemed to these people to be the hero, the savior of Israel. So that's kind of what they thought when they, when they would read this. So let's look at what Isaiah actually says in this famous pro- prophecy. This is very, very powerful stuff. It's found in Isaiah 9, uh, 2 through 7. And I'm just going to read the passage, and then I'm going to dive into some thoughts on it. Uh, if you have our pew Bibles, uh, it begins on page... Uh, can you go back for a second? Because I have to read that page number. <laughs> nope. I, well, it's on somewhere. It's in Isaiah 9, 7, 9 2 through 7. So I'm just going to read it for you. Now, I don't have the pew Bible, so... They went a little ahead. So here it is. Verse 2 through 7 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be, fu- will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and, he, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the prophecy from Isaiah. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much, God, for an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, event you gave us yesterday, Father God, when so many kids came in and heard the gospel, so many parents came in and saw a tangible reflection of your love, God, the very best that we were able to do, God. Lord, we just ask for continued opportunities, divine encounters with people that we could continue to show them what you look like and what radical generosity looks like and what it means to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, Father God, showing them, Lord, that even though this world is broken, Lord, there is a light and there is hope. And there is so much more uh, for them and for their families, Lord, than, than the lives that some of them are experiencing right now, God. Holy Spirit, right now as we dive into this ancient, ancient prophecy, Lord, we ask, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you'd be here. That everything that you would have me to say, I would say. Let everything else just fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> so by the time that the, uh, the final words of the Old Testament were written... Israel had grown weary of waiting for this Messiah to come. So there's all these prophecies for a Messiah coming. Basically, the narrative of Israel very, very briefly went like this. Uh, There's a man named Abraham. And Abraham uh, is given a promise. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. The problem with that is Abraham was essentially just a man He was a normal dude. He wasn't a king. He wasn't an emperor. He wasn't a ruler. He wasn't a pharaoh. He was just a guy. But then 14 generations later, at least according to Matthew's genealogy, a guy named David came. And David was the son of Jesse. He was a descendant of Abraham. 
And David was a great warrior. He was a great leader. But even in his case, it would seem that he was born maybe a generation too late because it was Saul who was named king when Israel demanded, hey, we need a king, we need a king. So then they made Saul one, and Saul and David weren't in the same family. So, it, so of course, Saul had three sons of his own, so it would be assumed that that would be the family line that would continue to be kings. The only problem with that is that in one battle, all three of Saul's sons all died in the same battle. They were all killed in one battle. And then Saul, he was so distraught about this that he fell on his own sword, leaving Israel once again with no king. And so David, who is in the house of Abraham, he's the father of all these nations. This is the prophecy, or this is the promise that God gave him. He, now David was made king, and suddenly everything seemed to be coming together for this family, for these people. It was all, it, in, in fact, it was during uh, David's reign that a prophet named Nathan actually prophesied to, to David and said, David, from your house, from your seed, I'm going to bring another ruler, another king, and this king will rule forever and ever and ever and ever. So one king whose reign would never, ever, ever end. So it's very obvious, if you're part of this family... And you're part, that you're part of this group of people who had every reason in the entire world to be excited and to walk confidently knowing that you're going to always be in charge, basically. Like that's kind of, from every prophet, every confirmation always was that David, from your family, a seed will reign forever, which means that the seed will have to always come from you. So one king whose reign will never, ever end. Ever. And it stayed that way for a while. That family continued to reign. That Ahaz was part of that family. Like um, um, Hezekiah, part of that family. It stayed that way for a while for 14 more generations, according to Matthew's genealogy, until around 586 BC, when a little before that, uh, Babylon had taken over Israel. And then at that point, they stripped the king of his crown. And they brought, they brought the entire nation into exile before that. And then they stripped the king of his crown. And suddenly the royal family was just like every other family again. They were slaves. And the hope of the promise of the coming kingdom, uh, they were really just daydreams and fantasies to them again at that point. Even when the exile was over and everybody was free to go, the family line of David was no longer the family that was in power. They didn't have kingship. They didn't have that majesty anymore. But rather than that, they had basically ended up right where they started again. Israel were basically normal people, David's family, normal people. There was no real hope of establishing that throne. So it was a lot of disappointment, right? It was a lot of frustration. It was a lot of sadness and anger and feeling lied to and feeling let down and feeling like, God, you promised you were going to do something, but you didn't do it. And that's kind of how people felt for a very, very, very long time. That's how the generations after the exile kind of went. After that, um, we, we, you get to the end of the Old Testament, and the prophet Malachi, he writes his final words, and after that, the prophets all basically went silent. And nobody would dare to speak of hope anymore because it all seemed to be a lie by this point. And that's essentially where the people of Israel were left off when the Old Testament ends. Then, there's somewhere of about 400 years of a period in which God seems to be completely silent. Nobody's hearing anything. The prophets aren't saying, anybody, aren't saying anything to anybody. He just seems gone. He seems like he went dark. He doesn't seem to be anywhere. And some of these prophecies that were given now 700 years ago, they basically were all but forgotten because nothing was seeming to come to pass. But it was over this dark period of time in which it seemed like God was silent that we had the rise of the Roman Empire. 
And the Roman Empire had an army that was unlike anything that the world had ever seen before. And they were rising out of a city that was unlike anything that the world had ever seen before. They created their own way of dating time. Like they actually had their own system for dating. It was a Latin phrase, ab uh, herbe candida. And what it means is from the founding of the city. So basically it was saying like when Rome started, that's when we're going to say time started. It took 700 years to fully build Rome into what it would become by by then. And that empire just reigned at that point from from what we now know as India all the way to Spain and all the way up to England. They controlled all of it. And they were setting up the world, the entire world, to be dependent on their systems. They were taxing people very, very heavily uh, so that people could no longer afford to keep their own land and to keep their own things. And they had to depend on the government to give them what they needed. All the way down to, again, their system of dating, basically the concept was, hey, you know what? Time starts when Rome started. That was the founding of everything. And everything's going to fall into that system. Caesar Augustus took power around 27 BC, which we did a sermon on this a couple of years ago. Uh, about I, I found it absolutely fascinating that uh, Caesar Augustus is dated in time as being uh, crowned emperor in 27 BC, right, based on before Christ, based on the time of Jesus, uh, not on his Roman Empire's version of time. Uh, because ultimately, just like every other government, Rome ended up collapsing, right? But when Augustus took power, he took things to a whole other level. And he essentially tried to unite, and he successfully united the whole world under his leadership. Now, Augustus is only mentioned one time in the Bible, so the rest of it you have to kind of go to the history books to get. But what you get in the Bible is actually very, very significant and tells you a whole lot about him. The one time he's mentioned in the Bible is Luke uh, 2, 1, and it says, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar was Augustus, Caesar was Augustus, Caesar Augustus was a man who had so much power that he could issue a decree, and the entire world had to follow that decree. That was how big this guy was. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And what happened was after his adopted father, Julius Caesar, was assassinated, there was a huge star in the sky. Uh, and all of a sudden, in, in one instant, the, sky, the, the star just disappeared. And when that happened, the wise men of that day, essentially what they would say was that star was very, basically carrying Julius Caesar up to, be, to heaven, to, get to his place, take his place in heaven because they said that he was a god. And so then Caesar Augustus, of course, then began saying, well, if that's God and, my, and he's my father, then that would make me what? That would make me the son of God. I'm the son of God. So before stepping into the role of Caesar, Augustus actually inaugurated what was called a 12-day advent in his own honor. Hopefully you're starting to see uh, some of the similarities between that and Christmas and the type of world that Jesus was actually being born into. Augustus put his face on all the coins that were distributed around uh, the world at that time with a phrase that that said, son of the divine. And his armies would go into different places all throughout the world. They would take people, they would drag them out, and they'd say, who's Lord? And you had to say that Caesar was Lord, or else you would be beaten, imprisoned, or in some cases you'd even be killed. Some recurring themes that people would say, you can look all this up in history, about Caesar Augustus, is that where the people would constantly say things like this, and the armies would say things like, there's no other name given to men by which we may be saved than Augustus. Which, of course, is exactly what Peter says about Jesus in Acts 4.12. 
So all of the things that we later find out to be true about Jesus, people are saying, and they're even forcing them onto the world, about a man who ruled the world when Jesus was first born. He ruled the world that Jesus was born into. So for people who, the people of Israel, the people who believed, well, there's no God but Jehovah, Caesar's not Lord, right? For them, this was a pretty difficult time in history to be alive. And it was an even more difficult time to keep your faith if you really think about it. Because for one, not only are you at risk for being killed if you confess God and Jehovah as God and say Caesar's not God, you're at risk to being killed. But not only that, but you haven't heard from God in 400 years. So you'd, actually be, you'd have to be willing to die for a God that you had 400 years to begin doubting if he was there or not. It was a very hard, difficult time to keep your faith. But as Isaiah says, the people who have walked in the land of great darkness have seen a great light. And when the world felt truly the darkest that it ever would, hope truly did shine the brightest as the true Emmanuel was born to an unwed teenage mother who by all standards even in our culture, would be, this is not a qualified person. This is not a qualified person to be the mother of God. This is not, you know, that's, this, she's not going to be the mother of the Messiah, right? To, to, and then Joseph, though, this man, this man who he, wanted, he was engaged to her, but he wanted to divorce her because he was not the father, obviously, because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit was the father. But then the Holy, then an angel came and told Joseph, he said, Joseph, what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Do not divorce her, marry her. So Joseph agrees to adopt this child. And it just so happens that Joseph is of the house and the lineage of David, putting Jesus in that timeline, that genealogy. Now, some people have a problem with that because, because Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. However, in that culture, who, who was king after, August, after Caesar, after Julius Caesar? Augustus Caesar. Augustus wasn't actually either his biological father. He was adopted. So many similarities. And so in the same way that Augustus was the adopted son of, C- of Julius, yet the world accepted him as Caesar, and they even celebrated him with this huge 12-day advent, Jesus was also adopted by Joseph, who agreed to marry, mother, uh, who agreed to marry Mary uh, because the Holy Spirit, because the angel told him the Holy Spirit was, his mo- was the father. But Jesus, he was not greeted with an advent celebration like uh, we give him now, and we're like, they gave Caesar. He was greeted with hostility. He was greeted with a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, because a man named Herod, who was one of Augustus's governors, was so threatened by what he'd heard about this baby that he set out to have every baby killed that was two years or younger because he, he tried to have Jesus killed, and when they ran, he basically, he's like, well, I'm going to kill all the kids then. So he killed every child in Bethlehem two years or younger. And the ultimate point of that is that when this child actually arrived, the arrival was met with darkness. It was not light. It was not hope. It was not excitement. It was not happiness. It was tragedy in every home that had a young child. It was devastation, all because of this child. Yet this child is supposed to be the one that that government, that government that has the ability to kill every single child in Bethlehem two years younger, that government's going to be on his shoulders? The larger-than-life government is going to be brought to justice by this child. See, what we fail to realize so often when we celebrate Christmas and we have our parties and we have our events and we do all this stuff is, 
Even though for us today, Christmas is a time when the world rallies together, when we're more generous than ever, uh, and we step everything up several notches and hope seems to fill the air, the first Christmas was anything but a happy time for people. Not only did it come at a great cost to every family that was close to Jesus, but it also, in order to initiate it, it took people willing, being, being willing to basically lead a revolution that, was, that directly contradicted the most powerful government in the history of the world. So all that to say for Israel, Jesus was not what they were looking for. So when they hear the prophecies, they see the kid, they're not thinking, oh, this is the fulfillment. This is not what they were looking for. See, when you realize the pattern that the people of God had been in for centuries leading up to that moment, you, re- you realize that what it is they were looking for, what it is that they were hoping for, and, and you realize why they missed Jesus when he actually came, because it wasn't what they were looking for. See, this is why it's so important to study today. It's because I believe that there are many people today who have... Jesus, he's right here. He's right in front of us. Even people who confess Jesus, even people who say, I love Jesus, I serve Jesus, and yet they miss him, just like Israel missed him. See, look at what Isaiah's uh, prophecy says. It says, his name shall be called this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then this is the big part, right? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom, right? So this is the idea for them. The idea is that the world system is oppressing them, okay? The world system is oppressing them through things like violence, through things like abuse, through things like power, and through scales that are not very balanced. And therefore, in their minds, God is going to send them a leader who, using that same system, will fight back on behalf of Israel and will, through the same means of violence and war, ultimately put an end to it by bringing their enemies to their knees. So for Israel, when they read, unto us a child is born, they think, okay, it's got to be Hezekiah, right? Because Ahaz was this horrible king that led us through all this horrible time, right? And God's punished us for long enough. He's been a wicked king. He's a huge mess. We're, We're in a huge mess because of him. And now this child loves the Lord. And Hezekiah did love the Lord, and he was a pretty good king. He was honorable, but he was still human. And here's the problem with Hezekiah being Israel's Emmanuel child. See, Hezekiah made mistakes, just like I do, just like you do. He made a very strange one, a bit of an obscure one. It's recorded in 2 Kings 20. And what happens is this. It's kind of, you, you, it's, it's strange. The king of Babylon sends presents to Hezekiah because he hears that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah was very sick, and I believe Isaiah prayed for him, and he was healed. But because the king of Babylon heard this, he sent some presents for him. And with these messengers, and these messengers come into Hezekiah's palace and uh, to deliver the presents. And for whatever reason, when they come in to deliver the presents, Hezekiah seemed to have one of these moments. These moments, maybe it's a bit of a pride moment of all that he'd had or the kingdom that he had or the world that he created or whatever it is. And he begins showing off his house to the Babylonians. The Bible says that he showed them all of his treasures. He held nothing back. He shows them his gold. He shows them the spices, the oils. He shows them the armory. There's nothing he did not show them. Essentially painting this picture that, hey, I've built a successful life. So Hezekiah blows it. And Isaiah, he hears about what had happened, and this is what he says. He rebukes Hezekiah, and he says, 
this is crazy to me. He says, you know what? Every single thing that you showed Babylon in your house will become theirs. It will all be gone to Babylon because you've done this. Everything that you think gives you worth, you are going to lose. Which, of course, we know happens not very long after that when Babylonians come in and they carry them into exile to take everything. That moment in history when suddenly the family line of David is cut off and they're stripped of their royalty. Because basically at that point, Israel is back in Egypt, right? They're disappointed. They're enslaved. They're waiting for the day when the words of Isaiah would one day come to pass and God would turn the whole thing around for them. But when I read this prophecy, this very powerful prophecy, I can't help but wonder if the reason why maybe Israel would take words like these and they'd buy into the idea that God was going to redeem them in the same way that, is, that Egypt had oppressed them, in the same way that Assyria had oppressed them, in the same way uh, that Babylon had oppressed them and that one day Rome would oppress them. I wonder if that, that possibly could be this. So you can read this prophecy that we read and you can read it and see a clear outcome right? You can see clearly what ultimately will happen. The clear outcome is the government is going to eventually be on this child's shoulders, and the kingdom will last forever, right? That's the outcome. But if you look closely at the prophecy, you also see a process, and it's brilliant. And, but the problem is if you put the emphasis on the outcome and not the, prophet, on the process, you end up thinking that God is going to reign in the same way that Caesar reigns. Look at this kind of piece in the center. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the champion warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, when you read the prophecy, right, this is the part that most of us skip over. Because we can't figure out how to fit Jesus into it. But this middle part is so significant. I used to gloss over this too because I, I, I just skip over this. I go to the government part. I go to, you know, I, I, I'd skip over that entirely, right? But this phrase, the rod of his oppressor, was actually a reference uh, to, it was first mentioned in Exodus in the way that Israel was actually held captive by Egypt the first time they were in exile. Actually, the words yoke, burden, staff, shoulder, and rod of his oppressor all are speaking to that. But I'm only going to tell you about this one for today, particularly in Exodus 5. In Exodus 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he demands, let my people go. Okay? We, we all know that story. Israel's in bondage. They're in captivity. Israel spends a lot of time being captive to people. So they're, they're in bondage in Israel. They're slaves. They're moving bricks. They're building bricks. They're making bricks. And what happens is uh, Moses says, let them go. And instead of letting them go, what Pharaoh does is he increases their burden by telling them, okay, no, you know what? Instead of letting them go, I'm going to raise the burden. I'm going to say, you have to make just as many bricks as you've always had to make, but now you have to first collect straw. But you still produce the same amount of bricks. See, you needed straw in that day to make bricks because the clay wouldn't dry quick enough without the straw. And it would be a lot more likely to crumble if you made it without it. But they're like, you need to make quality bricks. And so what happens is the oppressors were now making Israel go out, get the straw, gather their own straw, and yet still produce just as many bricks all in one, um, the same amount of day. Basically what they were doing was they placed an absolutely impossible burden on the people of Israel. And 
the reality is, though, is this is how empires do things. This is how they control people. One way or another, they keep people working. They keep people busy doing the things that they have to do in order to survive that day. And they leave no time for people to consider what it might take to give themselves a different life than the one that they have right now. They strip them of their dignity. They strip them of their sense of worth. And they do everything that they can to convince them that nothing is ever going to get better. It's not even possible. And the slightest hint of resistance, they increase the burden uh, so that even more energy has to get spent uh, on, on that work, leaving less time to think about resisting and forcing you to see um, that going against the empire is only going to make your life worse. So Israel is oppressed by the rod of Egypt. So that's what Isaiah points back to. He points way, way, way back to this oppression that Israel faced at the hand of Egypt. And this amazing way that God eventually redeems them. We, we know that story. We've talked about it a lot here. But and then he also connects it to the modern situation he's facing in Assyria in this incoming thing. And then he also points backwards also to a man named Gideon. And I'm only going to talk about this for like five seconds. But basically Gideon and his army, they're preparing to face Midian. The Midian army. And God wants to use this battle of his, as an example for how great he is. So what he does is Gideon has about 32,000 people in his army. And this is what God does. He says, Gideon, I want you to dwindle the army. So he gives them a couple different tests. He tells them to go home if they're scared. He tells them to go home if they don't know how to drink water right from the, from the lake. Or, you know, a couple different things. And basically God dwindles the army of 32,000 strong men basically into 300. Then he tells them to go to battle without weapons. So he says, bring torches, blow horns, and that's, that's your battle. So Gideon and his army do that. They bring torches, they blow horns, and it drives the, Midian, the Midianites so crazy that they begin killing each other. And Gideon wins a battle with 300 men and no weapons. Again, Isaiah's pointing backwards to all of that. While the thing's happening right there with Hezekiah, and he's also going to point forward. This moment in Gideon was this obvious moment that we did not do anything to win this battle. This is very significant. This battle would have been impossible to win if it was not for God. But do you see the pattern here? God wants you to know. He wants Gideon to know. He wants Israel to know. That whatever it is that he's going to do in you, it is only because of who he is. It is not because of who you are. And it is not because of what you do. God wants to show the people who are on the margins, the underdogs, the outcasts, the oppressed, to put their hope in him and he will fight their battles. You cannot face it on your own. You can't face it on your own. But Isaiah, he's not just pointing backwards to tell an old story. This is a prophecy. He's pointing forward to a time when the world was at its darkest, when God hadn't spoken for a while, to a world where you get what you want using military force. You get what you want by invading countries and by killing people and figuring out ways that you can put weights on people and weigh them down with burdens so heavy that they have to depend on you just so that ease that burden a little bit for them. And yet it was in the middle of all that that God says this. He says, The boots of the tramping warriors and the garments rolled in blood are fuel for the fire 
In other words, the tools of destruction, which are the image of the things which seem to be winning the world today, he says, you can throw them in the fire. You can throw it in the fire. All the things that you think give you power, all the things that you think will get you what you want, all the things that you think that it takes to rule the world, everything that you think it's going to take for you to get ahead, all the treasures in your house that you are showing off to make yourself feel good, all the military gear that you put on in advance to prepare to face the battle that you've convinced yourself you're strong enough to win. Take it off and throw it in the fire because that's where it's going anyway. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. Or maybe we say it like this. For every time someone has ever had their foot on your back, for every time that you've ever felt used, for every time that you've ever felt judged for the things that make you different, for the night that you've tried to forget but you just cannot seem to live down, for the weight of the world that you make yourself carry, for the words that someone has said to you that have pierced your heart right into your soul and they're slowly killing you from the inside every single day, throw that in the fire. And to me, there could not be a more significant moment, a more significant picture than the image of a fire being fueled by all the things that the world thinks that gives it its power. For unto us a child is born, and his name is Jesus. God says, I will show you where true strength comes from. And in the most counterintuitive, upside-down message a world like this could possibly have received, we find that the entire thing is going to get turned on its head by a baby. Born on a night, just like every other night, to a poor family in a nothing town that didn't even have room in an inn available for them to stay at who immediately became refugees, fleeing a government that literally was trying to kill him, who would grow up and would teach us that it is the meek who inherit the earth, not the power-hungry who've taken everything they've ever wanted by force. You can burn the things that society has convinced us are going to bring about change. Because even the concept of an empire is the most temporary concept you could ever imagine. There's not been one that has actually stood the test of time. There's not one that survived. And in the last 2,000 years, the only institution that has ever survived this entire time is the Church of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah knew that it would. He knew that it would. He knew that this child's kingdom was going to be a kingdom without end. And that's the message of Christmas. It's political. It's rebellious. It's upside down. For to us, a child is born. For us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. It's the message to every single mom who's had to raise the kids alone while working three jobs 
Things are not going to have to stay this way forever. They're not going to be this way forever. It's the message to the person on the corner who's begging for bread. This is tomorrow can be better than today. That you are not defined by the things that you've done and that Jesus Christ is in the business of making all things new right here and right now every single day. It's the message that oppression, it may win the day, but it will not win the war. And for everyone who lives by the sword, they will one day die by the sword. But the eternal reign of peace, it knows no end. It's the message to the sick, to the lame, to the poor, to the hungry, to the hurting, to the lost, to the oppressed, to the marginalized. That yes, the world has positioned itself against you. The the world has positioned itself with its foot on your back and it's trying to keep you down. But when the world feels its darkest, a light has broken through. And it's the message for the sinner that there is hope and there is forgiveness. And a child has been born, and it will all be on his shoulders. We just can't buy into this notion here that Jesus did all these things, and he did them just for us. He did them just for you, but he also did them just for everyone else. That's why I think it's important that we do what we do every year at Christmas. I think that's why it's important that we rally a little extra at Christmas. Because see, if you see a great light, which I believe we have all seen, You've seen that light. You know how dark the rest of the world is. What could possibly be more important now for us, church, than to let the rest of the world see that light? What could possibly be more important than bringing light to the darkest places? Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know what? You're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are carriers of the message of hope. You know, yesterday, we had over 700 kids through this building. Here's the event. The kids all went downstairs. For those of you who weren't here, the kids went downstairs. The parents went through this line and they just shopped and they picked whatever toys they wanted to get for their kids. And 700 kids went through that. They didn't go through that. They went downstairs while the parents shopped. We don't even know how many parents we had. And, and the, the kids all heard the gospel. Every one of them. 700 kids heard the gospel in this building yesterday. And every single one of them is going to go home. And on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve or however and whenever they celebrate it, they're going to have a present that their mom or their dad or whoever selected just for them. And if nothing else, at least we made it clear to our community and to the people on the other side of these four walls that we're here. That there is a place that they can turn if they need to when they feel like they can't carry that weight all on their own. It's not about toys. It's not about the stuff. Man, if it ever becomes about the stuff, if we ever start to think this is about toys, this is about stuff, then we should throw it in the fire. Throw it in the fire. That's why I love the fact that our church does so many things based on partnerships. When Donna and I first got here, that was one thing that um, God really spoke to us, was partner, 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 partner. And we didn't really know what that looked like, and we're starting to see more and more what that looks like right now. But here's the thing about building a, a, a church on partnerships with other people, is because we know we cannot do these things without God intervening. We can't do these things without God bringing everybody together and doing it all at once. He's the source of the light. 
we are not the source of that light. So we're not going to be able to pull all this off on our own. We just get to be carriers of his light. We get to be one of his carriers of the light. But this is the truth. And this is why I believe that God blesses our church as much as he does. And this is why I love our church so much. And I I just, I think he's going to keep blessing us and he's going to keep taking care of us as long as we take care of people. See, the world is one, I'm sorry, the world is run by greed. It's what makes it go round. But the world is won by generosity. And generosity is the gospel. That God would love the world so much that he would give his only son. That Christ would leave his throne, that he would come down into this world and he would live amongst us, Emmanuel. God with us. Emmanuel, God moving on our behalf. Because we all know what happened to Caesar Augustus. He died. We all know what happened to the great Roman Empire. It fell. Augustus stayed dead. Time stamped August 19th, 14 AD. The Roman Empire dating system, it all got thrown out. It was no match for the child. Now this world's riding out the systems. Rome never again was what it once was. But when Jesus Christ resurrected, the church got stronger. And the church got more powerful after his resurrection than it was even in his short lifetime. Jesus Christ is the only one who is more powerful in his death than even in his life. Because generosity won the world that day. And that is what Christmas is all about. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this.